You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. If you don't recognize my voice, that's because uh, today is my first day as one of the hosts on the Doctor's Lounge. My name is Scott Barber. Uh, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, member of Docs for Patient Care Foundation, uh, and I'm uh, going to be joining you guys. And over the next uh, months and weeks, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, health care. Um, I'm very passionate about this subject. Obviously, I'm a I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Um, I've been in healthcare for 30 years, and I've been an observer of the implementation of healthcare. And I've obviously developed opinions over those years about the best way to deliver that care. And those are some of the things I'd like to talk about today, um, and in the the months and weeks ahead. Um, Healthcare is obviously a very important subject for everybody. It's a, it's an enormous uh, part of our economy. Um, over twenty percent of our economy is healthcare. It's obviously a politically very charged um, subject. We got a large portion of the country that wants uh, government-run socialized medicine, and then we have a large part of the country that wants free market solutions to healthcare, and then we have a large part of the country that has no idea what's going on. They just want healthcare. So hopefully we're going to be able to iron out this subject and break it down into uh, pieces that everybody can understand. Now, I understand it's an incredibly difficult subject. As I said, I've been in medicine for uh, almost 30 years now, um, and I still am learning about how healthcare works. But it's very important. Um, I am of the opinion that we need free market solutions to health care. <coughs> got an amber. Uh, flash flood warning. Um, this area until uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Avoid flooded areas. Makes sense. Um, but that's what all of that was about. All right, so that was everybody's cell phone going off, letting us know that uh, there's a potential flood condition. Uh, so everybody, be careful. Uh, anyway, back to what we were talking about. Uh, I'm of the opinion that uh, the free market is the way to go to uh, improve health care. Um, I, I believe this primarily from the practice of medicine, the implementation of medicine, and being a patient. I've, I've uh, had to go to the doctor and receive treatment as well. And so I'm going to give you uh, my perspective, and uh, hopefully uh, we can have a discussion about this. I'm on Twitter, at Dr. Scott Atlanta. That's at D, uh, DR underscore Atlanta, Dr. Scott Atlanta. If you want to uh, contact me during the show, I have my Twitter open here, and I'll be happy to, to uh, interact with anybody. My email is scottbarbermd at gmail.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-B-A-R-B-O-U-R at gmail.com. Please send me emails with uh, questions, critiques of the show, and um, I will be uh, happy to read those and, uh, and um, modify the show so that you guys uh, get the information that you need. Now, just a little bit about me. I'm, um, I currently am an orthopedic surgeon practicing in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I have five clinics in and around the Atlanta area and a surgery center. 
Barbara Orthopedics uh, currently has uh, four physicians, uh, and we have about 120 employees. And uh, we're constantly working to deliver the best possible orthopedic care um, anyone could get. Uh, And I've used my experiences uh, over the past 30 years to guide me in uh, delivering that type of care. I grew up in Hawaii. My father was a naval officer. My mother was a nurse. Um, My father, long ago, asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And at the time, I was a pretty good soccer player. And I told him, well, of course, I'm going to be a professional soccer player. And he chuckled. And he said to me, in case your soccer career falls through or you get some sort of injury or after you retire, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I thought to myself, well, I don't know what I want to be. And he said, well, you need to give it some thought. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, how much money do you want to make? Do you want to work indoors or outdoors? Do you want to work with your hands? How much vacation do you want? Do you want to sit at a desk? Um, There's a lot to consider. And uh, it got me to thinking, the very first thought that came into my mind was, well, I know one thing for sure. I do not want to work for the government. Even at that very young age, I was afraid of the bureaucracy And it was because I had had experience with it. My father was in the military and going to the PX to shop for food and going to receive our health care through the military system and seeing all the difficulties that my parents had uh, in dealing with the government bureaucracy made me recoil at it. And I said to myself, well, the first thing I want to do is get a job that has nothing to do with the government. Um, The next thing was I wanted to do something that was difficult. I knew I didn't want to sit at a desk. I'm a um, I'm an ADHD kind of a kid, and I want to be up and around and moving. And um, my mother was was a nurse, and she she exposed me to uh, the joyous wonders of being able to deliver healthcare. And I thought, what a great way to make a living, um, being able to to help people. One of the other things I considered was how much money I wanted to make. Um, my parents, <clears throat> uh, we made a, a middle-class living, but we were obviously by no means wealthy. I had two brothers. Um, fortunately for me, my parents were able to send us to private school, which saved my life. Um, and uh, I, I thought to myself, I wanted a job where I made enough money to pay my bills. I didn't want to have to uh, worry about that. And so I thought being a doctor would be be uh, a good good occupation that would allow me to to achieve all of those goals. Um, I set out, I uh, went to uh, to uh, U- University of California, Los Angeles. Um, I was uh, a soccer player at first. I then transferred to the University of California, Berkeley, uh, where I played soccer and rugby. Um, I then applied to medical school. Unfortunately, I didn't get into medical school until my fifth try, <clears throat> but that journey uh, taught me a lot about myself, taught me a lot about the system. I finally got into medical school, and when I got there, I said to myself, I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm struggling to get to the next level. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, which uh, requires you to do pretty well in medical school. I managed to graduate at the top of my class there, uh, and anybody who knows me will tell you I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm a pretty hard worker. And uh, I was very fortunate to do that. I ended up um, getting into an orthopedic program at the University of Miami. 
I completed my orthopedic surgery residency there and went back to California where I thought I was going to live. Uh, and um, I did a fellowship in sports medicine at the Palo Alto Fetical, uh, Medical Foundation. Over the course of uh, my years, I had opportunity to work with the Oakland Raiders, the San Jose Sharks, um, uh, and other uh, USA rugby um, and uh, when I finished my fellowship, I wanted to start my own practice. I had grown up with the vision of Marcus Welby, um, which if you're not not 50 or older, you probably don't even know who I'm talking about. But he was the uh, sort of um, quintessential doctor with the tweed jacket and the patches on his elbows and um, really establishing doctor-patient relationship, and he was the caring, caring doctor that that one imagines when you think about a doctor. I wanted to start my own practice uh, because I wanted to be in charge of um, of how the care was being delivered, and I also wanted to be responsible for my patients. So I got together with some friends of mine uh, that I went to residency with, and we started a practice uh, in North Georgia, and. Um, at the time we started the practice, the only thing I knew about um, doctors was that they were rich, is because that's what I see on TV all the time. And so I didn't really pay attention to money. I had no concept of the business of medicine. Um, and we promptly uh, went out of business after about five years. Um, primarily, our, we were very busy, but we didn't understand why the insurance companies were refusing to pay us. And so... I left Georgia. We went. I went to Oregon for um, about 16 months where I was able to sort of lick my wounds, learn more about the business of medicine, sort of recover financially. Uh, but um, my wife and I had just um, had our second child, and it was cold and raining and um, small. There wasn't a lot going on in a small town in Oregon, and so we decided we wanted to move, and uh, we came back to Atlanta, where um, I've been uh, developing a private practice. Um, and uh, and now today, uh, you know, I have Barber Orthopedics, uh, and we're continuing to grow. Now, during the course of my my journey, I learned a lot about healthcare in terms of the business how it's delivered, what motivates people, what patients need, um, how doctors and nurses and healthcare providers factor into this relationship. Um, and what I've come to realize is that a government-run bureaucratic healthcare system cannot work. Everywhere we look at government-run healthcare, we see failure, we see high costs, and we see um, no innovation, and we see horrible quality. <clears throat> now, in the United States, um, we can see what government-run healthcare looks like um, up close, and we call it the Veterans Administration. Now, in the United States, there are about 150 or so medical schools. There are about 150 or so Veterans Administration hospitals, and they're typically um, aligned with the hospital system so that the uh, veterans' hospitals are able to make use of the labor of the medical students and residents that are located there. So when I was in medical school and when I was in residency, the VA was a great place to go and train because uh, we were allowed to do all the work. Um, now, from the patient's perspective, that's not necessarily the best scenario to have 
um, incompletely trained doctors uh, operating on you and taking care of you. Um, and the worst part of it is you have incompletely trained doctors being run by a government bureaucracy. So the VA is 100% government run. And we've seen in the news uh, recently, it's been going on for a long time, that uh, veterans have long wait times uh, and that they they have very poor access to health care. What's maybe not so apparent to people who don't work at the VA is the health care that they're receiving is not the same health care that you see in free markets. It's very, very limited. Um, just to kind of give you some perspective, uh, when I when I started uh, my training, I went over to the VA uh, as an orthopedic resident, and we usually had uh, two, two, two orthopedic residents that were in charge of running the orthopedic service um, over at the VA. Now, our supervising attending was an older gentleman, and uh, I don't ever really remember seeing him around. Uh, it was really up to the residents to do everything. Um, one of the first things we noticed was that uh, the VA was very inefficient at delivering care in, in the operating rooms. Um, we used to joke around that the VA does the morning case and it does the afternoon case, which is kind of funny. Nowadays, I can do uh, as many as 10 cases in a day. Uh, when I was uh, working in my fellowship, we did as many as 18 cases in the same day. Uh, so the efficiency in the free market was obviously um, very, um, you know, it was very much. It was much more efficient. We were able to deliver better care. The VA, the morning case, and the afternoon case. Um, the reason for that has to do with the bureaucracy, and we will get to more of that after this next break. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Mike Mizell. I'm a retired Army colonel and president of the Johns Creek Veterans Association. We meet in Newtown Park, and part of one of our projects is the installation of the Healing Wall, the half-scale model of the Vietnam Wall that traveled the United States. Well, it's coming to rest, and it's going to live in Johns Creek forever, the half-scale model. We're looking at a possibly a march implementation ribbon cutting ceremony and we're looking for donors and sponsors that want to help us in this great project you can donate at jcvets.org
You're listening to America's Web Radio. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. I'm your host today. Uh, And uh, as uh, everybody who's uh, been listening to the show so far knows, I'm one of the new hosts uh, at the Doctor's Lounge. We were discussing uh, the difference between free market health care and government-run health care, and I was giving my experiences at the Veterans Hospital uh, to uh, uh, illustrate how government-run health care is, uh, is a complete and abject failure. Now, when I, I was setting the, the stage. When I first got over to the uh, Veterans Hospital, uh, it's tip- it was typically run during my residency by two residents, a third-year resident and a fifth-year resident. Uh, and we were in charge of basically seeing patients in the clinic, determining who gets surgery, and basically running the, the entire system. So one of the things about the operating room at the VA was that it was very inefficient. We used to joke around, you do the morning case and the afternoon case, meaning two cases in an entire day. And when my partner and I looked at that, the first thing we realized was that the reason that it was so inefficient had a lot to do with the fact that nobody wanted to work. And we felt that if people weren't going to do their jobs, that we would just do that for them. So um, we would come in in the morning, we would go up to the holding center, we'd go and we'd grab the patient, we'd wheel them down to the OR, put them on the operating room table. Uh, We would do the procedure. When we were done doing the surgery, during the surgery, if I needed any instruments, rather than wait for somebody to bring it to me, uh, we would scrub out. I would go down to the core. I would get whatever equipment I needed, go back to the operating room, scrub back in, finish the case. When I was done, I would put the patient on the gurney, wheel them to the recovery room. We'd go back to the operating room, grab a mop, and we'd clean the room over and what we call turning it over. We'd turn it over and get it ready for the next case. And Uh, Then we'd go up to the holding area and we'd get the next patient. And we were able to triple the output. Just from me and one other person deciding that we were going to do this job, we were able to triple the output of the surgery. And we felt very proud of ourselves. Um, I remember feeling... um, you know, that I'm a great person in the sense that I, you know, I'm all about the people. And, you know, I just, I felt good about what we were doing. And uh, about three weeks into this, we got a message from the uh, person running the the VA hospital, the person in charge. And uh, he called and said that he wanted to see both of us in his office. I can remember my partner and I getting onto the elevator and high-fiving each other and saying, you know, we're probably going to get the uh, Presidential Medal for Freedom. Um... You know, we're probably going to get a, a lifetime supply of Starbucks coffee. I mean, you know, we, we really felt like we were about to go in and and, um, and be lauded. That could not have been further from the truth. We ended up going into his office, and he sat us there for literally six hours um, berating us, um, threatening us, and basically saying you're messing up his system, uh, that everybody else in the hospital is – complaining about what we're doing and that if we didn't stop doing it, he was going to ensure that we were never able to uh, uh, attain the fellowships that we wanted to get. Uh, I was stunned. Um, I couldn't believe that we were being punished for doing this work. And um, now, as I'm a much older sage and I can sort of look back on how the real world works, this is what a bureaucracy is. Unfortunately, people go there. There's no accountability. There's no incentive for people to work hard. And when we came in and started working, we were actually creating work for other people, and they didn't like it. 
And so dejected, punished, and actually I was worried about not being able to get a, a, a sports medicine fellowship. We went to the call room, and for the rest of the two-month rotation, we basically laid in the call room, watched TV, and uh, allowed the medical students to do everything. And that was sort of my first hard lesson uh, at how a government bureaucracy works, and especially how it works in healthcare. Um, I remember the first time I was on call at the VA hospital when I was an intern. So. I don't remember how much longer after I graduated, but it was pretty close to yesterday I was a medical student and today I was a doctor. So I had no practical experience. I was very book smart, but I didn't have a lot of experience running um, running a, a hospital. So I show up that night. I'm on call, and I was referred to as what they call the surgeon of the day. So I had to stay in the hospital overnight, and I was basically responsible for everything that happened to every patient Um regarding surgery. Well, that was ridiculous. At that time, I didn't know how to read an EKG. Uh, I didn't know how to run a code. I was not competent to run uh, to run a hospital. But to the bureaucrat, all they saw was MD. You know, the rules say you need to have a doctor in charge. So they saw that I was an MD, a medical doctor. So they put me in charge with no real understanding or perspective that I was inexperienced and not ready for prime time. Um, I remember the first time a patient had a code. When the when you have a code over at the private hospital, there's a huge team of experienced people that come in, and a, you know one doctor whose experience is sort of running the show, and other people are starting IVs, other people are putting the EKG on, and people are are providing the oxygen. There's a big team going on, and that's what I expected. When I got to the VA, I was the only one working there. When somebody coded, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, hey, can I get some help? And people looked at me like I had three heads, like, no, man, the doctor does that. And I'm like, well, I need help. I don't even know how to read an EKG. And by the way, where is the EKG machine? <clears throat> so they said, well, last time I saw it, it was up on the third floor. I'm not telling – I'm not lying here. This actually happened. I had to leave the patient, run upstairs, grab the EKG machine. I brought it back down. I'm literally reading the instructions on the machine as to how to hook this EKG up, trying to assess the patient's breathing and trying to assess his uh, um, re- uh, circulatory system, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, <clears throat> I asked the nurse where the medicines are, and they said, well, it's in the head nurse's office. So I said, could you get it? She said, no, that's the doctor's job. So I got up from the patient again. I ran to the office. The door was locked. So I asked the nurse, well, how do I get in? He said, well, the, the, the head nurse has the key, and she's on her uh, lunch break. And, I, I, you know, fortunately, the patient did okay, nothing to do with me. Uh, but um, I was just absolutely stunned. And this is not an isolated case. I've worked at Veterans Administration hospitals from coast to coast uh, and in the center of the country, and they're all very similar. Now, that's not to say that there are not some good people that work at the VA. There are. But as I explained to you, the good people tend to get beaten out by the bureaucracy, which we used to refer to as the beast. You cannot move the beast. Uh, We came in, my partner and I, we had great intentions of wanting to deliver care to these veterans. Um, But there were people that were lifers at the VA that didn't want to do the increased work, and they complained. And so they were able to beat us into submission. I remember another time that... um, I was working in the orthopedic emergency room, and we sort of had a code that you took care of all the patients that were there during the day so that when the person came in at night on call, you handed them what we called a clean pit. We used to refer to the orthopedic emergency room as the pit, um, the pit of despair. Um, And so 
I on one particular day it was lunchtime and it was very busy and I started to realize that I was going to have a hard time getting through everybody by quitting time and I did not want to d- deliver a dirty pit to the person who was coming on call. And uh, so I, I told my tech, hey, listen, I'm going to work through lunch because I want to be done at 5 o'clock so that when the person comes on call, they don't have any patients to see. So my tech says, my, his name was Miguel, and uh, he says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to stay and help you. So I didn't think anything of it. We sat there. We started seeing patients. We worked through lunch. The day ended. No big deal. I didn't see Miguel for about two weeks after that. Um, and then about two weeks later, I'm in the orthopedic emergency room there. He's my tech to assist me. And I said, hey, Miguel, where have you been? And he said, do you remember a couple of weeks ago when I worked through lunch? Um, I was like, yeah. And he goes, I got suspended for that. And I started laughing. And I was like, no, really, where were you? And he goes, I'm not kidding. I got suspended for not taking my lunch break. This is how the bureaucracy works. They are more concerned about somebody setting a precedent of actually helping people and delivering care that it cannot be tolerated because, God forbid, if he starts working, other people will be asked to work. And the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy simply cannot tolerate that. And I know many of you are out there working in other bureaucracies and school systems, um, in actual government. I know my brother uh, has worked in a government bureaucracy, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not something that's unique to health care. It's unique to any bureaucracy where there's no accountability. There's no what we call the discipline of failure. No matter how poor of a job they do, it just doesn't matter. Nobody ever gets fired and nobody ever gets held accountable for a failure to succeed. Now, if we look back at healthcare from a 30,000 foot view, how did we get where we are? Well, it goes way back to Plato. Plato articulated a healthcare system that was from the perspective of the state. Plato was basically our earliest proponent of socialized medicine. And what Plato wanted was a healthcare system that empowered the state to be the most powerful. And it didn't really care much about the individual. Hippocrates, on the other hand, espoused a doctor-patient relationship um, a relationship that was between the individual and his doctor. Now, in the Western culture, we obviously adopted the philosophy of Hippocrates. We take the Hippocratic oath. We don't take the Platonian oath. So this concept of the doctor-patient relationship is at the core of our system, and it's antithetical to a socialized system. Now, um our Western culture enjoyed uh, a very high quality healthcare system for many years, and around the time of World War II, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president at the time, um, um, froze wages so that companies couldn't increase wages. And during that time, that is when companies began to offer health care as a benefit because they couldn't offer uh, increased wages to attract employers. And we'll get into more of that after this next break. Dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it and you'll love having one in your shower. Listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. This is Dr. Scott Barber. I'm one of your new hosts on the Doctor's Lounge. Uh, we've been sort of looking at healthcare today from a 30,000-foot view, trying to understand where, we, where we've come from, where we are, how did we get here, and what are we going to do to uh, solve our problem and help us all get um, healthcare that's accessible, that's high quality, that's the lowest possible cost, and that's replete with innovation. So we were talking about um, we had a real free market of healthcare based on the philosophy, philosophy of Hippocrates. Hippocrates espoused the doctor-patient relationship and put the emphasis on the individual. This is in stark contrast to Plato, who uh, believed that 
um, health care should be delivered from the perspective of the state and that the uh, individual had a minor role, that health was uh, more of a state issue. So Plato is more of the socialized medicine um, perspective, and Hippocrates is what we consider in the West to be our doctor-patient relationship with emphasis on the individual. Now, we had a free market system up until about World War II. In World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt froze wages so that um, employers could not offer more money to attract employees. And so in place of that, they developed a health care benefit. And that's what led to our third-party payer system. And that was sort of the first uh, problem that was introduced into our system that sort of led us down this road where um, doctors and patients had been separated by an ever-increasing government bureaucracy. Um, in 1965, um, we implemented Medicare program and the Medicaid program. Now, Medicare is for people over the age of 65, and I believe its um, its origins, for the most part, uh, were founded in good intentions. Uh, but there was also another side to that. When the government controls the health care, they also control the flow of money, and they control the political power. And we're going to explain that in a little bit. Now, Medicare and Medicaid are also examples of government-run systems um, and also other examples of absolute failure. We've got um, Medicare, which currently is $100 trillion in the hole with unfunded liabilities. It's unsustainable, and it's going to collapse at some point. Um, we nurse it along, um, you know, right now, but at some point we're going to be unable to do that Uh and Medicaid has such a high penetration of government control that uh, there was a an Oregon study that demonstrated that people who have no health care have better health outcomes than um, people with Medicaid. And um, Medicaid is very difficult. I stopped taking Medicaid a long time ago because I would have a patient that would come in with some sort of injury, let's say it was to the hand, I would fix the, the hand surgery or I would perform the hand surgery and the patient would require um, occupational therapy. It's very important when you fix a hand to get therapy quickly, otherwise you can have significant complications. Well, Medicaid was always denying care and always creating these scenarios where I had to call call some bureaucrat who was not easily accessible on the phone. Um, by the time I got somebody on the phone, they were really not competent to even understand what I was talking about. And it just made it impossible with all of the patients I was seeing. There was simply no way that I would be able to, um, I would be able to get in touch with these bureaucrats and get these approvals. And as a result, it was affecting my patient's care. And at some point, um, I just said enough. Um, now, when I when a Medicaid patient comes to see me, I just take care of them for nothing. That's easier for me, um, and it's better for my patients. But it's a good illustration of how our government-run system is failing us. Um, one of the things that affects the doctor-patient relationship when the government gets involved is it it separates the the doctor from the patient and. By example, if you can think back to my time when I was at the VA as a resident, there were two of us, and we were in charge of seeing all the patients. So we would go to a clinic, 
and we would evaluate these patients. And as I told you, when we went to the operating room, we were really only able to do two cases. Those were all the resources that we had, the, the morning case and the afternoon case. So we had to be very selective about the patients that actually got into the operating room, which meant a lot of people who really would have benefited from surgery um, ended up not getting it. And so we would go out into the clinic. We'd find the, the people that were um, not only the two most important, but the ones that we were able to do with our skill level. Remember, we're, we're still just residents, so there's certain things we're not capable of doing uh, and also had a time constraint. So we would try and find two patients that were in need that had surgeries that we were able to do that um, um, that would fit into the schedule. And so that meant a lot of people who really needed surgery were not getting it. Well, I would see a patient in a clinic, and I would send them for physical therapy, and then they would come back at the end of that therapy. And I knew full well that the therapy wasn't going to solve the problem, uh, but I needed to offer this patient something. So it was usually medicine and therapy. And I can remember showing up at clinic, and you'd kind of peek your head around the corner to see who was out in the waiting room. And I remember that sinking feeling like, oh, my gosh, there's Mr. Jones again, and I already sent him to therapy, and I still can't get him in the OR. What am I going to tell him today? And what you do is you hide from that patient because I don't want to face him. I don't want to tell him, hey, listen, there's just no resources. You're just going to have to suck it up. So you send a nurse out or, or a tech out, and you, you try to avoid that patient. This is just the natural evolution of the bureaucracy. The more the bureaucracy gets control of the healthcare, the less power that the doctor and patient has, the more it becomes difficult to see your doctor because since they can't offer you anything, they end up hiding from you and making it difficult uh, to, to see you. The other thing is... Um, I know when I have my private practice, and my practice is called Barber Orthopedics, if my patients are unhappy about anything, it's my name on the wall, I will do absolutely everything in my power to try and make that patient happy. Because if they leave unhappy, it's going to be not my name they're saying. If I'm employed at uh, some uh, you know hospital system and it's not really up to me, I can just blame it on the bureaucracy. Uh, and and not get into these things. And there are certain issues that I'm just not going to pay attention to. Um, Now, I remember um, my mother recently, um, she fell down the stairs. My mother's uh, in her late 70s now, and uh, my brother uh, takes care of her, and he calls me and says, Mom's got some bruising, and she's got this issue and that issue, and she's not acting right. And I thought to myself, all right, you got to get mom to the emergency room. And I explained to my brother, now listen, when you get to the emergency room, they're going to run all kinds of worthless tests. They're going to do all kinds of silly things. But this is what I need. You have to get these x-rays. You have to get these labs. Make sure you get that. So my brother takes her to the emergency room, and he calls me back, and he goes, oh, my God, that was ridiculous. They did all of these ridiculous tests and studies and all of this kind of stuff. And then I had to make sure that they got those x-rays and labs that you told me. What's going on there? And I said, Mom has Medicare. Medicare is run by the government, and the government, the politicians, and the hospital systems have an alliance. And so when mom comes to the emergency room with her Medicare, they're not looking at her as a patient. They're looking at her as a Medicare um, banknote that the hospital can harvest money from. There are things that Medicare will pay for. And so they run this test and that test, and they get a CT scan, and they get an X-ray and certain labs. And with my mother, they did some sort of testing to see how she would fare in a uh, retirement home and 
all of this stuff. And the reason they do it is because the Medicare bureaucracy will pay for it. And what's wrong with my mother is almost an afterthought. The doctor's so trained to go in and, and they're actually punished if they don't order all the tests that would be covered. Uh, and so taking care of the patient is almost an afterthought. Um, years ago, um, I was uh, um, approached by a salesman for an ultrasound machine. Now, an ultrasound machine is a very useful tool in certain circumstances, but it's not necessary in all circumstances. So um, part of my job is to give injections. So I give steroid shots into knees and shoulders and hips and fingers and ankles and wrists, all kinds of things. It's kind of a standard treatment for, for health care or for orthopedic surgery. Now, I did that for many years, and I felt like I was pretty good at it. And a salesman comes in, and he says, I want to sell you this $50,000 ultrasound machine. And I said, well, why would I use it? And he tells me, well, it's going to make you more accurate with your injections. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, studies show that, you know, you miss the joint a couple of more times uh, if you don't use an ultrasound. And so I was like, okay, great. But, I mean, I don't feel like I'm losing business, and I don't feel like patients are leaving me saying um, – gosh, you missed with that steroid shot, I'm out of here. And uh, he said, well, if that doesn't incentivize you, then um, you can bill the insurance company three times more by using the ultrasound than you can do than you can if you just give the injection straight up. So um, I said, okay, well, are you sure about that? And, and I, I got a machine, and I tested it out, and sure enough, the insurance companies were reimbursing me three times the amount for an injection if I used the ultrasound machine than if they did when I didn't use the ultrasound machine. Now, as a doctor, let me tell you, I didn't notice any difference, but hey, um, if they're going to pay me three, more, three times more, then I started using it. Um, I remember I was still a little bit hesitant, and he said, if the fact that the insurance companies will reimburse you uh, three times more for the injection, um, then the final thing is there's a tax credit where you can purchase this machine for $30,000 instead of for $50,000. So basically, the taxpayer is picking up uh, 20% of the, uh, the cost of this machine. So now you have me using a machine that I don't need, that I'm passing cost on to the consumer, uh, that um, is benefiting what we call big medicine. And big medicine really consists of the insurance companies, um, big pharma, the hospital systems, and the device manufacturers. And what they do is they get in an alliance where politicians um, get with, with government basically to shuttle money to these hospital systems. Those hospital systems then share this money between insurance companies uh, and device manufacturers, and the people who get left holding, holding the bag are doctors and patients. So the doctors are um, have less and less power and influence to decide, make medical decisions in, on behalf of their patients, and, beha- and patients' premiums have been skyrocketing uh, over the last decade to the point now where um, you know, premiums are up uh, 120 to 150 percent. Deductibles are up, you know, um, uh, you know, 50 percent. Um, and the cost has gotten so prohibitive that, um, you know, people can't really access their system. So somebody like me, I have a massively high deductible. When I go and access the system, I even though I'm paying these massive deductibles, I think I spend like $30,000 a year to get my Obamacare insurance. And um, 
when I go and access the system, my deductible is so high that I'm still paying cash for my care. And if you're one of the people out there who gets a subsidy, your deductible is so high that when you come in, you can't access the system. So you feel good about, oh, I have my insurance card in my pocket. But when you injure your knee and you go to the doctor and they say, okay, your deductible is $10,000, you know, the, the patient will say, well, I can't afford it. And they end up not getting care. So um, this has gotten out of control. It has to stop, and part of this show is going to be to educate you folks so that you can understand the magnitude of the problem that we're facing, and we can come up with solutions. Now, there was an article that I read in the New York Times that really articulated this in an excellent fashion, and it's, uh, it's uh, New York Times, uh, Yale economist Zach Cooper, and what they did was they analyzed how members of Congress voted for a Medicare provision that allowed hospital systems to apply for increased government payments. And what they found was hospitals that were in districts of members who voted yes received more money than hospitals who were in districts where their representatives voted no to the tune of $100 million. So just to get this clear, you're you're a member of Congress. You got this provision that says hospitals are going to get paid more for their services. The members of Congress who voted yes got, um, or I'm sorry, the hospitals in the districts of the congressmen who voted yes got more money than the hospitals that were in the districts of congressmen who voted no to the tune of $100 million. Now, the hospitals who then got that money then hired more staff, increased their payroll, built their bureaucracy, um, and then spent millions of dollars to lobby to extend this program where these hospital systems were going to get greater reimbursements from the government for their services. You can see that this this uh, empire that is being built that has massive constituents um, a hospital system employs tons of people. It controls a large part of the money. They spend a lot of money lobbying these congressmen. And so politicians, both um, um, Democrat and Republican, are incentivized to to grow big medicine at the expense of the doctor-patient relationship. And that's why people are going to have to... Um, People are going to have to get themselves educated about this. We're going to have to get vocal about this. We're going to have to tell our congressmen that you guys have increased our our healthcare premiums and deductibles so high that we're unable to take care of ourselves and our families. Now, listen, Americans are charitable people. Doctors are charitable people. And, you know, if you talk to any doctor, they're going to tell you stories about how they deliver care for free all the time. We're not in this uh, necessarily to make money. We're in this to take care of people. But the government has has um, inserted themselves between doctors and patients. Big medicine has gotten in there because the big medicine gives doctors and patients the power. Uh, I'm sorry. Big medicine gives these big medicine the power. So the hospital systems, the insurance companies, big pharma has all the power. And as a result, they're fleecing uh, Americans and causing our health care to to d- diminish in quality, to increase in cost, and to be inaccessible. Now, back to this Yale Economist study by Doc, uh, Doc, uh, Zach Cooper. Um, so they spent millions of dollars on lobbying. So when these hospital systems were receiving these increased uh, payments from um, from the government for their services to the tune of $100 million, that money was spent lobbying to extend the program. 
Uh, it was spent on increasing their payroll uh, and expanding their government bureaucracy. Then what we saw was that the congressmen who voted yes received an increase in their total campaign contributions, 25%, and they received a 65% increase from individuals working in the healthcare sector. So we can see that we got a big problem in front of us. We got an alliance between big medicine, big medicine and government, but we are going to discuss ways on this show that are going to put the power back to be between doctors and patients so that Healthcare decisions are going to be made between doctors and patients. We're going to preserve quality. We're going to preserve access. We're going to make sure we take care of our seniors, and we're going to make sure that we take care of vulnerable patients like those with pre-existing condition. Get back to you guys after this break. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. Um, we've been discussing uh, our health care system, discussing where we've come in healthcare in this country, how did we get here, and what are going to be our solutions to restore the doctor-patient relationship and to preserve and expand and improve a healthcare system that is innovative, that has high quality, that is accessible, 
and that takes care of the vulnerable people in our society, those with pre-existing conditions, the old, the poor. And these are things that as Americans we have we have done throughout time. I know that there are a lot of people who feel that government can solve some of these problems, but um, my father used to teach me that whenever you have a plan, you need to implement that plan to see how it works. Uh, when the Wright brothers came up with the idea of a plane, they didn't just build their first plane and then immediately start selling tickets for passengers for transcontinental flights. They had to to put that plane in the air. They had to see how it reacted to the wind. They had to see <clears throat> what the problems that they anticipated were. There were problems that developed that they did not anticipate. Well, healthcare is the exact same thing. Um, it's a complicated system, and we come up with plans, but we put those plans into practice, and then we see what works and we see what doesn't work. The implementation of socialized medicine or government-run healthcare system has failed every single place that we see it implemented. In our own country, um, our um, Medicaid systems, the VA systems, uh, Medicare, although we take good care of our our um, our seniors, our cost is killing us, um, and the system itself is not working. Um, when we look abroad, we see Canada that has a socialized medicine system. Um, Barber Orthopedics has more MRI than some provinces in Canada. We saw at the height of the Affordable Care Act debates the premier of Newfoundland. He had a heart condition, and he flew to Miami to have that procedure. It wasn't even offered in Canada. And this person was a large proponent of government-run health care. And when confronted about this, he said, well, it's my life. I can do what I want, which is sort of the attitude of people who espouse this government-run health care, the people in charge. The little people, the peasants, they don't have that that possibility. But the, the elites, they get to leave and they get to go and get the kind of health care they want. What we want to do is create a system where everybody has access to, to quality health care. Now... <clears throat> Um, the Canadian system, we know currently about 60,000 people a year leave that country to get health care elsewhere through medical tourism because in Canada it is against the law to contract outside of the government system for health care. Um, and so as a result, when people don't want to get into that system, either they have um, – uh, a cancer that's stage four that they ref they don't treat in Canada, so patients are forced to flee to places like the United States and other places where they do. Um, uh, whether it's uh, if anybody works in a neonatal care unit along our northern border, they know it's difficult for American children to get in there because it's filled with Canadian babies. Um, if we look at the British health system, they got um, – Four million people that are waiting greater than 18 weeks for care. Uh, the British health system is uh, going so bankrupt that they are literally closing down uh, hospital surgical suites and shipping patients out to private companies that are operating in basically tent city surgical suites. This is how ridiculous it's gotten. When we look at the country of Newfoundland, uh, sorry, when we look at the country of um, – um, gosh, I'm blanking on it right now – Finland, uh, they recently um, had their uh, health care – or their, they had their government collapse uh, basically due to their large um, 
commitments to their socialized health care plans. Um, <clears throat> everywhere we look at socialized medicine, it's failing our people. In our own country, we see that it's failing our people. And listen, I'm the type of person that I just want to be a doctor. I love taking care of patients, and I want to take care of them to the best of my ability. And I am just looking at the situation and seeing what works and what doesn't work. A government bureaucracy, a one-size-fits-all, is not effective in taking care of patients. Um, it's not nimble enough, uh, and it, it doesn't. Uh, it's it's not compassionate. You know, we saw during the Affordable Care Act there was this concept of, you know, uh, people like me would call them death panels. This 15-member board of non-medical, unaccountable bureaucrats deciding who gets care and who doesn't get care. That that's just not something um, that uh, that Americans can tolerate. Our health care. Our own personal health is one of the most important things to each and every one of us, and we deserve to have uh, our own decision makings uh, about how to how to take care of ourselves. And I can tell you, as a physician, that every patient is an individual. They have certain set of circumstances that make them unique, that make them different from other people, and. As a physician who's been doing this for 30 years, I have an understanding about what what medicine looks like and what it doesn't look like, what will work and what doesn't work. I can have ideas. Now, I'm not saying that I have the solution for every patient, but that's kind of the point. If I don't have the solution, a patient can go elsewhere and find another doctor who does. Um, in socialized medicine situations, that's not the case. You get the doctor who's in front of you, and that's it. Um, just to kind of illustrate this, I do a certain procedure called a hip arthroscopy that's uh, a small surgical procedure. You take, uh, 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 make two little stab incisions on the side of a hip, and you can stick a little camera in there and look around in the hip joint, and you can fix problems in there. Now, 20 years ago, this procedure really didn't exist um, in any um, significance, uh, but I was able to um, use my own training and experience to take shoulder instruments, stick it into the hip, and me and other people were able to develop a whole thing now called hip arthroscopy. And now every city, every big city has somebody who's trained in this. This innovation came because decision-making about healthcare was between doctors and patients. Um, I want to thank you guys for um, allowing me to talk to you guys uh, today. Um, I'm really excited about being on the team here at the Doctor's Lounge. Again, my my email is scottbarber, S-C-O-T-T-B-A-R-B-O-U-R, at gmail.com. Please send me emails with critiques of the show or questions or things that you would like to talk about. Um, I look forward to seeing you guys next week. Again, my Twitter handle is at drscott underscore Atlanta. That's uh, at drscott uh, underscore Atlanta. Um, welcome uh, or uh, thank you guys for having me i apologize i'm new at this we're going to get better at it i look forward to seeing you guys next time have a wonderful week you're listening to america's web radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com thank you for listening